Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, Wimbledon season is upon us. How fancy. Yes. Uh, the tennis tournament of all tennis tournaments is taking place June 23rd. And we figured, hey, you know what we haven't talked about before on the podcast? Tennis. Women in tennis. Women in tennis. And there is so much to talk about when it comes to women in tennis. And I will say that unlike, I feel like a lot of the sports topics we've covered on Stuff Mom Never Told You, that usually goes along the lines of, well, men started playing this sport and then... 8,000 years later, (laughs) some doctors decided that women's uteruses wouldn't explode, and so women started playing. (laughs) Tennis is an exception, though. Yeah. Perhaps because of its more upper-crust country club-esque roots. Uh, So let's dive in a little bit to the history of how tennis started and when women started playing it. Yeah, in 1873, a man with a name that sounds like straight out of a Dickens novel, British Major Walter Clopton Wingfield, patented a tennis-like game with an hourglass-shaped court called Sphoristiki, maybe I'm pronouncing that correctly, which is Greek for, quote, playing at ball. And he's often cited as the inventor of tennis, the way we think about it today. Yeah, but there have been tennis-like games that have been going on for centuries, even before that. Um, some trace it back to a 13th century French nobility game called Jeu de Palme, or Game of the Palm, because humans apparently really enjoy hitting balls with paddles, and we've just been doing that for a very long time. But it was really with Clopton Wingfield that tennis got off the ground. Um, well, so then the following year in 1874, you have Mary Ewing Outerbridge of Staten Island, who introduced tennis to the United States. She went all the way to Bermuda and purchased equipment to use to set up the first tennis court on the island. And three years later, speaking of Wimbledon, in 1877, the All England Croquet Club stages the first men's singles championship at Wimbledon, and 22 players entered the tournament, so obviously it was a very small affair, but still it didn't take that long for Wimbledon to open its doors to women. In 1884, Wimbledon championships were open to women for the first time, so there wasn't that massive gap. Yeah, there wasn't that massive gap. It was just the gap between the rich and the poor. Yeah, which we which we will <laughs> yeah. get into more. Um, and three years later, in 1887, Ellen Hansel was crowned the first women's singles tennis champion at the U.S. Open. And Lottie Dodd, love that name, Lottie Dodd, uh, won the Women's Wimbledon Championship for the first of her five-time wins between 1887 and 1893. And hey, fun Olympics fact here. In 1900, you have the Paris Games, and it offered two events for women, lawn tennis and golf, because that's what the only sports really that proper ladies of the day played. And tennis playing Charlotte Chatty Cooper became the first woman to win a gold medal. Hmm. And if you'd like to see uh, an interview with her, we <laughs> just happened to have her on our Stuff Mom Never Told You show, Her History, and uh, you should do- totally watch it. You can just go over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. By the way, it's me. I'm, I'm, I pretend to be <laughs> Charlotte Chatty Cooper. 
I haven't gone completely off my rocker. Although possibly you will think so if you watch that episode of History. So this brings us up to 1900. Women are playing the game, but we now want to take a little side road and talk about from here the evolution of what women wore on the tennis court because that might seem like sort of a, a superfluous topic to focus on, but it actually says a lot about women's roles and the amount of athleticism Mm -hmm. that they were permitted. Yeah, clothes are political. This is something we know. This is something that we've talked about, that changing clothes is political. And so back in the Victorian era, uh, women were wearing basically a full suit of armor to play tennis uh, or the equivalent corsets under dark-colored, high-colored blouses with Ground-length skirts, tap- typically made from fur-trimmed flannel. I mean, just kill me. Like, I, I, I like have a baseline sweat that I'm always at. Like, I'm always just like vaguely anxious and sweaty. Uh, but put me in a Victorian tennis outfit, and I would just stroke out. But so anyway, but so anyway, as you can imagine, this outfit, so to speak, restricted women's movement a lot, meaning that they could only play the dainty pet ball. Yeah, it was actually called pat ball because women's movements were so restricted, they could barely do much more than pat the ball. Get it over the net. Or I don't know, maybe they were, I just picture them like very close together. I picture them on a, on a tennis court that is just the size of a ping pong table and they have to use these tiny paddles. To get it over. Not any dainty like. So dainty. But I thought it was funny that by the 1890s, white had become the go-to color thanks to uh, a woman named Maud Watson who wore white at Wimbledon in 1884. But I thought it was funny that by the 1890s, white had become the go-to color for women's tennis attire. A, because player Maud Watson wore a white Wimbledon outfit in 1884 and looked very fashionable doing it, but also white helped conceal sweat stains. Right, because sweating is like such like an underclass, like only the lower classes are supposed to sweat. Exactly. But how could you not sweat playing tennis in all of those clothes? Well, if you're just playing pet ball, maybe Uh, you won't sweat as much. But in 1905, American Mary Sutton Bundy caused a stir. She rolled back her dress sleeves, thus showing her wrists, and the Wimbledon crowd went crazy. Yeah, it was quite a scandal. I mean, and and that's not even her ankles, folks. <laughs> that was that was just her wrists. But by the 1920s, thanks largely to a very fashion-forward French player, of course she was French, Suzanne Langlin, uh, they were essentially freed from corsets. And you should Google image, though, the pictures of her playing tennis because she was wearing this like bandeau around her head rather than a larger hat like a, l- a lot of ladies were wearing and shorter skirts and just sort of that more flapper style. And I, honestly, Caroline, it was a very fetching look that you could possibly pull off even today. Ooh, even today when I play a bit of pet ball. Um, well, in 1949, uh, we have another fashion forward individual, Gertrude Gorgeous Gussie Moran. 
She attracted a lot of attention for her lace-trimmed bloomers that she wore under her tennis skirt. Yeah, these weren't... When I first read she wore lace-trimmed underwear, I was thinking that she must have had a really short skirt on. But no, it was... These were actually almost like biker shorts Mm -hmm. with lace on them, kind of like the ones we used to wear under baby doll dresses in the early 90s. And again, they were kind of cute, but people flipped out over that. That was highly inappropriate. But really what these women were doing by causing all these scandals, particularly at Wimbledon, was essentially chipping away at the amount of clothes that female players had to wear so that by the time you get to the 1950s, Women tennis players weren't wearing things like tights yeah. <laughs> and their hemlines were shortened. Mm-hmm. And, and gradually, you know, today, if you think of the kinds of outfits we've seen Venus and Serena Williams wear, I mean, it's, you know, the sky's the limit or the, the clothing's the minimalist, if yeah. you will. Well, and I mean, I think, you know, like you said, clothing seems like a superfluous topic, but but it's not. I mean, I think as we've shown this, and when you think about it, it it has so many layers to it because, you know, when they when Victorian women were wearing like head to toe tight flannel, they their movements were incredibly restricted. But the more clothing that you take away, the more athleticism you let women exhibit the more they can actually play a great competitive game of tennis, the more that people are then interested in women's tennis, and on and on and on. Well, and it ties in, too, with the politics of women's bodies. And, I mean, this whole thing reminded me a lot of uh, when we talked about the evolution of women's swimwear to where, you know, it used to be that women would have to wear dresses with weighted-down hems into the water so they wouldn't billow out and perhaps show those scandalous ankles. It's a similar kind of thing that is happening on the tennis courts during this time. But also speaking of witnessing uh, signs of social progress on the tennis court, we also need to talk about the diversity of tennis because back when it started, it was very much and still kind of is to some extent a well-heeled sport that often took place at exclusive clubs and people who were not white were often barred from playing or even competing in some tournaments. For instance, uh, Forest Hills, also known as the West Side Club, which is home of the U.S. Open through the late 1970s, was not integrated for a long time. Right. So the opportunities were very limited for people of color. I mean, let alone women of color. But there were a lot of women who made a name for themselves in tennis. Starting back in 1917, Lucy Diggs Slow won the singles title at the first American Tennis Association National Tournament. She then went on to become the first female African-American national champion in sports. You might also know her name because she was one of the original founders of the Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority. Oh. Fun fact. Talk about a groundbreaker. Um, and that American Tennis Association was largely African-American. I mean, because they were having to form their own associations because mm-hmm. of of racial segregation at the time. And then in 1929, you also have Ora Washington, who was such a powerhouse. She won her first American Tennis Association singles title in 29, and she held that title for seven years, and that was a record that she maintained until Althea Gibson came along and broke it with nine titles. But, I mean, speaking about diversity in tennis and 
I mean, that doesn't mean only skin color. That also means diversity of experience. So whereas tennis had been this this domain of rich white people, people of leisure who were playing it at clubs, people like Or Washington had to work in domestic service to support themselves. So it's not like for a large you know majority of people when tennis got its start, it was just like, oh, well, I don't have to work. I, I just get to participate in this fun leisure activity. But for someone like Ora Washington, she had to work. She had to support herself through domestic service. So there is a definite diversity in experience that we're getting around this time, too. Well, and you see a similar kind of uh, socioeconomic diversity being brought to the table as well with Althea Gibson, who is probably, the name is probably familiar to a lot of listeners, but she still had struggles of her own because also at the time when she was uh, breaking all these records in the 1940s and in particular in the 1950s, uh, she still had to supplement her incomes in some ways. She actually started playing golf for a little bit during the tennis off season because it wasn't like, you know, Nike could come along and sponsor her like they could today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so in in 1947, Althea Gibson won the first of 10 consecutive American Tennis Association National Championships. She went on to break multiple color barriers in the sport, despite the fact that she was a little uncomfortable playing such a significant front page stage left role. Yeah, I mean, she she talked about that, about how she wanted to just play for herself. Mm -hmm. And I can only imagine that if you are on a tennis court competing against someone else, there's all that pressure in the moment of wanting to win that match. But then on top of that, you, you, she, I think felt sometimes like she had the weight of her entire race on her shoulders when she was on the court. But (laughs) nonetheless, she still went on to be such a trailblazer because in 1950, she became the first African-American to play in a major United States Lawn Tennis Association event at the U.S. Nationals. And her case was helped by white tennis player Alice Marble, who was one of the top tennis players at the time because people, you know, a lot of people didn't want to let Althea Gibson play because the place where they were playing was segregated and she would have to break a color line and people were really uncomfortable with that. But Marble wrote this public letter saying, you know what, I want to see how good I really am. And if she's one of the best athletes in the U.S., then we should compete against each other. And then Althea beat her, which is great. Well, um, a year later, in 1951, Gibson became the first black player ever to compete at Wimbledon. And she goes on to be the first in many things. In 1956, she was the first black person to win the French championships. And in 1957, she was the first black person to win Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. And she was voted the female athlete of the year by the Associated Press. And notice we're saying black person because she was the first uh, male or female player of color to do this. And she's sort of known for for breaking those color lines, breaking down barriers for other players. But as we'll get into in a little while, I mean, when you talk about players like Arthur Ashe or the Williams sisters, there's really not that many other people of color playing tennis. There are still a lot of barriers there. Yeah, I mean, it's still a predominantly white sport. But when it comes to women's tennis, it has been a standout among other professional sports 
in terms of how women have really been able to pave their own way and also have ripple effects into social changes within the broader population. Um, and a lot of that was led by Billie Jean King and the other quote unquote original nine players who started up the Women's Tennis Association in 1970 in protest of male tennis players getting paid so much more for wins. Because, for instance, in 1970, Billie Jean King received $600 for winning the Italian Open, while the men's champion earned $3,500. Right. And a lot of these players, a lot of the original nine, had a lot of junk to deal with from, you know, there were some Australian players who were not allowed to play for their country anymore. There was, like, this huge upheaval about, you're you're just going to leave and, like, start a girls only club well that's not fair we don't want you then to which they were like no but see what you're doing isn't <laughs> fair so we're going to start our own thing and it's worth noting too that this is within the context of title nine being passed in 1972 so there is a lot of attention being focused during this time in the early 70s on women in sports yeah and their efforts certainly paid off in 1973 they did start the women's tennis association tour And the same year, the U.S. Open started offering equal purses to both men and women. And and for people unfamiliar with the tournament system, purses means prize money. When I was a kid, I thought it (laughs) meant that people got highly decorated purses. And I still wanted one. But but I wondered in my child brain, what would a guy do with that? Maybe he would keep his tennis balls in there. Yes, his his tennis balls. His tennis balls. Mm-hmm. Um, same year, 1973. Big year for gender issues and tennis. Let me tell you, because that is the year that Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs faced off at the Houston Astrodome in the famed Battle of the Sexes. King was just 29 and had just won Wimbledon. She's a champ. Meanwhile, Riggs was 55 years old and had just beaten Margaret Court, the world's number one women's tennis player in what was called the Mother's Day Massacre. Yeah, essentially he was doing these exhibition matches against women as part of his public persona of being this outspoken chauvinist. He, I mean, he called himself a chauvinist pig. Mm-hmm. He, he thought it was like really funny and needed to make some cash. And so these kinds of exhibition matches were a way for him to make some money. And he had beaten court. But the thing is, leading up to this tennis match, as Billie Jean King, of course, is training and watching videos of Riggs and like making sure that she can beat him, because this means a lot to her, because she's an outspoken feminist mm-hmm. at the time, and this is really being built up into something that has a much broader social significance beyond the tennis court. But Riggs was doing pretty much nothing to train because he had beaten court and he just assumed that he would similarly beat Billie Jean King. Mm-hmm. But that is not what happened, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, the L.A. Herald Examiner headline the day after the match was Pigs Are Dead, Long Live the King. Billie Jean King won. In other words, yeah, she won. And while there are still to this day lots of questions about the battle of the sexes, a lot of angry people asserted that Riggs threw the match for money. Billie Jean King says that's ridiculous. She saw it in his eyes. 
that he had lost and that he knew he was losing and he didn't want to. Yeah, I mean, she she was basically saying, you know, everybody chokes at some point, and mm-hmm. it was just clear on the court that he choked, but he also choked in front of the largest tennis audience yeah, I mean, ever. It was held at the freaking Astrodome, like it was held in a ginormous on a ginormous stage. And that event is such a time capsule when you read all of the ways that it was being framed. And and he even was brought into the tennis match. I mean, it was, it was very hammy, the whole thing. He was brought in wearing a Sugar Daddy brand jacket. You know, the can- the Sugar Daddy candy sponsored him. And so he was wearing this Sugar Daddy jacket and had these, you know, buxom babes escorting him out. Meanwhile, Billie Jean King came out. I forget who her sponsor was, but it was something similarly pro woman and she should have been sponsored by ortho tricycline but she was brought out um by a bunch of hulking dudes mm-hmm. and it was this entire spectacle but it made a huge difference to a lot of both girls and boys watching mm-hmm. tennis that day just to see a woman beating Bobby Riggs. Yeah, and King talks about how, you know, she knows that it made a difference to to boys and men also because she has a lot of guys come up to her still and say, you know, I watched that and now my daughter is a tennis player and all this stuff. And so it it really made huge waves throughout the whole not just the tennis community, but really American society. Well, and speaking of making huge waves, this is also a time where women's tennis was a very early platform for LGBT visibility. There is a great quote in the book Love Game by Elizabeth Wilson, which is about tennis, um, which goes, in the 1970s, all the feminists followed tennis because of Martina Navratilova. It was a lesbian thing. And um, this was in the 1970s. That was before Navratilova officially came out. But both she and Billie Jean King came out publicly in 1981, although King, who was actually married at the time, was sort of forced out of the closet by her former secretary, who I guess she had had a relationship with or the secretary alleged she had had a relationship with. And there was a palimony suit that uh, kind of forced King out of the closet. But then later that year. Navratilova came out on her own terms. Well, which is pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing that she came out on her own terms after what happened to King because, I mean, she was forced out of the closet and that's bad enough. But then she proceeds to lose all of her, her deals, her endorsements, her support. And so she was like, you know, I'd been thinking about retiring or, you know, stopping playing tennis, but all of a sudden I can't. Because I have no more additional funds coming in. I've got to keep playing tennis. And, you know, it was really hard for her and her family, her parents. She's described as homophobic. But she talks about how society at large was homophobic at the time. And she said even a lot of LGBT people were themselves homophobic at the time. And so it was incredibly difficult for her as a very public athlete to be forced out of the closet like that. So it's even that much more impressive that Navratilova chose to come out on her own terms after that. Yeah, and I wonder if that was almost uh, a bit of solidarity with King because another layer on top of that too is that Billie Jean King had been so closely aligned as well with uh, the second wave feminist movement that had its own 
troubled relationship with lesbians. There was a lot of fear within those circles that if they aligned with lesbians too closely, then that would only, you know, confirm the very, you know, sexist, misogynistic stereotype that all feminists are just man-hating lesbians. And they were like, well, we don't need that for our PR team. So there was clearly a lot of, of conflict going on within King in this whole process. So, yeah, I, I just wonder, um, I, it's good in that way then that Navratilova came out because I think it probably helped move that, push that momentum forward instead mm-hmm. of leaving it stalled in this more controversial coming out that King experienced. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about pay earlier. And if we're if we circle back and look at that issue today, after all of these women like Billie Jean King and Navratilova have, you know, been public faces of women's rights and huge tennis stars, surely like that must mean that all women and men are getting equal pay in tennis, right? Yeah, no, not that, that that's not necessarily the case. Um and and this is despite the fact that beyond, you know, King Navratilova, the original 9, etc., through the late 80s and forward, we have Jennifer Capriati, Steffi Graf, the Williams sisters, Lindsay Davenport, Martina Hingis, Monica Seles, Martina Sharapova, all of these names. We could keep on going. All these women who have clearly cemented women's tennis as a world-class professional sport. And yet, there is still a lingering gender gap. And speaking of Wimbledon, why is it that women just play three sets, whereas men play five? Because they're playing a little bit of pat ball. It's just the pat ball. It's just a little bit of the pat ball over the net. Now, women are, are athletes, guys, and, and should probably just play five sets, just like the guys do. Although, you know what, if I was out on a tennis court right now, I'd probably be like, ah, three's fine. Well, it's very humid here today in Atlanta. I yes, will give is. you that. Um, but yeah, so this whole issue of, of equal pay and equal time spent broadcasting women's tennis is definitely still an issue, even though, as we've talked about, it is definitely a sport where women on, are on a more equal footing with their male counterparts. Um, back in 1999, about 60 female professional players signed a petition to the Women's Tennis Association for equal Grand Slam prize money. Yeah, and then in 2007, Wimbledon finally caved and became the last major to offer equal prize money. So now all of the Grand Slams have equal purses for men and women, but that's often not the case at a lot of lower profile events. And for, you know, considering the fact that a majority of tennis players are not Venus and Serena Williams making money hand over fist, there's actually quite a pay gap when you look at tennis on the whole. Right. There was a study called Advantage Men, the Sex Pay Gap in Professional Tennis that found that female professional tennis players earn 23.4% less than their male counterparts. And then when you take in the issue of like women earning less than their male counterparts and having to support themselves, it's it's a really awful situation. Yeah, it, it can definitely be tough out there for uh, a not... A list tennis player. Yeah. If you're trying to make a living out of it. Um, and then there's this question too with the, the athleticism, the question of why in grand slams women play those three sets as opposed to five. And a lot of people say this 
is really um, kind of hearkening back to the Victorian era mm-hmm. of tennis because when it started, it was under the the idea that women simply could not withstand playing tennis for that long when clearly these world-class players can absolutely do that. So some are arguing that it should also be evened out to where women also play five sets to sort of drive home that point that these are two groups of equally trained and equally competent and talented Athletes, Right, because the whole three-set thing is often used as an argument to not pay women the same amount in prize money because it's like, oh, well, they don't even play as much as men do. Yeah, it's almost like calling them the opener, you right. know, at a, at, a, at a rock and roll show, Caroline. And another gender gap pointed out by the Wall Street Journal is in tennis officiating. If you look at the umpires, only 22% of the bronze level and above chair umpires are women. Mm-hmm. And this might, this probably isn't because they're trying to keep women out. It might be for lack of interest or again, lack of visibility. I have no idea though. I'm, I'm not in the tennis world. I don't know if being a chair umpire is a position that people really grapple for. I know, though, that umpires, for instance, in baseball, make a lot of money, as do referees in in the NFL. Right. Well, one woman they interviewed who was training to be one of these chair umpires said, she's basically like, well, I don't know why more women aren't interested in this, you know, but maybe it's because women don't want to get yelled at. Oh, by tennis players and coaches? By, By the tennis players and coaches, also by the audience. Yeah, that definitely seems like a downside of the job. But that's whether you're a man or a woman. Right. Um, but when it comes to to how these A-list female tennis players are more uh, broadly publicized, how we talk about them, um, there's also this interesting term called big babe tennis that was coined by Mary Carrillo that some think is, oh, well, it's just sort of... Uh, it, it, it describes the t- style of tennis today where you have these larger, muscular, athletic women who play really powerful tennis, but apparently they're also babes. Yeah, and I mean, that that's an issue a lot of people have, have had a problem with because, you know, they're just, they're athletes. Talk about them. You you don't call the guys like stud muffins. You know, I mean, although you could. You could. But I mean, you know, it, it's this whole idea that women aren't allowed to just be athletes. They also have to be sexy. They've got to be babes on the court. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's something, though, that when you look at women in sports in general, if you just Google image like a female athlete, a lot of times it, it ends up being like sexy pinup kinds of mm-hmm. photos, which you don't see quite so much with men. I feel like that's not so much a problem for tennis, but more how we, I guess, don't want to grasp just women, women as athletes. There always needs to be this sort of sexualizing that happens. Well, speaking of that, people are trying to tell women that they can't grunt on the court when they hit the ball. Okay. Yeah. I read about this, Caroline, how the Women's Tennis Association, in fact, is trying to tamp down on female grunting on court. And I'm not going to demonstrate what that is on mic because I don't want all of our podcast listeners to have uh, get a get a case of tinnitus from that, but I will say when I play Caroline, one of my favorite things to do is grunt. Mm-hmm. It feels so good when you hit the ball and make contact. Hopefully, in my case, you never know, and get out a good grunt. I feel like it helps. Yeah, well, and a lot of people would argue that it is a physiological thing that it does help 
people, men and women, propel the ball, have that burst of energy and action. Other people say, oh, they're just out there screaming like crazy women trying to distract their opponent. Yeah, there there might be a tactical benefit to it because if you grunt at the same time, it uh, sort of masks the sound of where on the racket the tennis ball hit, mm-hmm. which, if you are a seasoned player, will tell you where the ball is going to go. Uh, whereas if you're me, I'm going to be running like a crazy person from side to side anyway, because I have no idea. But, but the tone, the tone of the discussion about women's grunting is very gross to me, because, and I don't mean gross, like, I just mean that it's it's distressing, because everybody seems to be like, ugh, Women making noises they they might also make when doing something like in the bedroom or giving birth to a child from their vaginas, like ooh, well, that's gross. No, men grunting is okay. That's like that's not a sexual thing. I don't have a problem with that. But women grunting, I have a problem with that. I do think though, I, I will give the Women's Tennis Association, which by the way, they, they this conversation came up in 2012, and they were going to actually come up with almost a gruntometer uh, that measures. <laughs> The, the sound of a player's grunt and if she kind of got out of control then they would maybe fine her for it. I think it's a pretty undisputed fact though that female tennis players probably grunt more than male tennis players but it might still be that physiological aspect of it when it comes to sex differences and upper body strength M- maybe the grunting that women I'm now like <laughs> for people for people listening, I'm now making uh, air tennis racket movements with my arms. Um, but perhaps the grunting sort of makes up perhaps for differences in our upper body strength. So Maybe. It gives us a little bit more muscle, a little I mean, bit more heft. Well, I watched a YouTube clip of one of the Williams sisters playing against Maria Sharapova. And so you've got Sharapova screaming. And you've got the Williams like grunting and it's just you're like, wow, because a lot of people do say that, okay, no, I don't care if it's a woman or a man. It's just plain distracting for the fans. But who cares, though? I mean, we're we're not playing. Who cares? Yeah, I think. Yeah, there was a lot of a lot of debate about it with some. um, I think it was Billie Jean King, actually, who was a little ambivalent, but she definitely wasn't. She wasn't staunchly against it. She thought, well, you know what? If if this will if this will move women's tennis forward, then okay, let's do it. Let's cut down on the grunting. Yeah, but a lot of people are, you know, the pitch. They say that you know women just have a higher pitch, and that is grading on the average tennis viewer. Well, that's when it gets to circles back around to well. Now you're just being rude about our voices. <laughs> this is just how we talk slash grunt slash uh, scream. Right. Sometimes. Well, so, you know, I mentioned before our our mid-roll break that you have a woman like Althea Gibson who broke down a lot of color barriers in the sport and a lot of barriers for women, um, but that there was not this huge flood of people of color, of women of color after her. So obviously there are still these barriers today. And so, I mean, looking forward... I mean, I, I hope that we see more diversity coming up in tennis. Well, I think tennis is a chal- has a challenging barrier of entry because unlike, say, a, a team sport like football where a, a kid 
from a lower socioeconomic background can maybe hop on a team at mm-hmm. school. Um, tennis, I think, is a little more isolated. And, I mean, if you look at Serena and Venus Williams, see, we really, I mean, we could have done an entire podcast just on them. I mean, they trained for six plus hours a day. I mean, they were, I mean, and it was their father's intention to raise two world-class tennis players. And it takes so much time and a lot of resources. And I mean, the Williams sisters did not grow up wealthy at all, but it took a father who almost like Tiger Woods, father who trained those kids from, I mean, they were, I think five and six years old when they started playing mm-hmm. up until now to, you know, be who they are. Yeah. So it still seems like their race aside, it does still seem like there is a socioeconomic barrier a lot of the time to getting involved in this competitive tennis because, you know, the, the Williams sisters, they all moved to Florida to train at a really elite tennis school in Florida. Like who, who can do that? Not everybody can do that. Well, and even today, if you think about uh, the fancier suburban neighborhoods, mm-hmm. they're the ones with tennis courts and a pool. You know, they have access right. to that, whereas it can be a lot harder. I mean, we have there, there's actually a, uh, a public tennis court near me, but it's usually locked up. Oh, and the, the nets, you know, sometimes up, sometimes down. I mean, a lot of times, you know, those, those more accessible resources aren't always kept up so well. Yeah. But what is interesting to see, um, with this progression of tennis is that today, if you look at the top two female tennis players in the world, it's two women of color. It's Serena Williams at number one and Lena at number two. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think tennis is such a, and we've said this, but I mean, I think tennis is such an interesting example for our girls coming up behind us because it does have this history of uh, gender equality might be too strong to say, but I mean, of letting women in, of not keeping them out and these these incredible names in African-American tennis, these incredible women who made names for themselves and broke down barriers in that regard, too. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to sports, tennis usually is cited as the standout in terms of gender equity. Mm-hmm. But it's also because women fought for it. Yeah. You know, they formed the Women's Tennis Association. They demanded equal purses. And so far, they've gotten it, which is pretty incredible, too. Mm-hmm. So now we want to hear from folks out there. Are there any ten- tennis fans listening, tennis players? Who's your favorite tennis player? Let us know all of your tennis and Wimbledon thoughts. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can email us. You can also tweet us at Podcast or message us on Facebook. And we have a couple of messages to share with you right now. Okay, well, I have a letter here from Kara about our Women in Animation episode. She says, I recently started looking at grad schools for animation, and I've only gotten a chance to tour one of them so far. My boyfriend went with me to the school, and when we were there, we were introduced to many of the staff, all men. Every time we met a new staff member, they consistently started talking to my boyfriend about the program, not me. When they saw that I was the one responding and asking questions, they stopped talking and asked which one of us was planning on attending. At the end of the tour, the woman that was showing us around, an administrator, not an artist, apologized to me and told me that the classes are 85% male, so no one would assume that I was the one applying. She seemed a little sad that it was so male-dominated and encouraged me to apply to help women get into the business just a little bit more. 
just one of the many times I've experienced a gender gap in art recently. Ugh. Kara, I'm sorry about that experience, but good for you for getting into animation. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, I've got one here from Joanna about our episode on imagination. And she writes, I do still, at 21, spend a lot of time daydreaming slash imagining slash telling myself stories in my head, but they're nowhere near as vivid and almost physical as the ones I had when I was a kid. I was an avid lover of horses from an early age and spent a lot of time pretending to have a horse or be a horse with friends or alone. And it's crazy how real it was. It was probably partly because I was regularly riding horses and interacting with horses, but still, when I was galloping around in the forest... Or on our lawn, it was so much like being on an actual horse, or even being a horse. And oh, the horses I imagined I had, and how I loved them. And Joanna, I can only recommend that you head over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com and search for the video, Why Girls Love Horses. There's also a podcast on it, and you're going to love it. If you love horses that much, then we have a video and a podcast for you. And also for all of our other listeners as well. If you want to email us, you can write us momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also find links to, again, all of our videos, podcasts, and blogs at stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 